Good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the last chapter of the book of Daniel, page 636 in our church Bibles, chapter 12. And here we are at the end. Not the end end, but the end of Daniel. (laughs) I was going to say another one bites the dust, but that's probably not appropriate on a Sunday morning. So pretend like I didn't say that. Another book we finished out. We're going to pick up reading in verse 4 to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river, and that would probably be the Tigris, and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the, wa- uh, above the waters of the ri- river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of of the 1,335th days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray so we can get the help that we need. Father, we, we, we humble ourselves greatly before your throne of grace. And our prayer now is much like it was last week because the need is the same. We need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And we need you, God, to please grant us understanding, allow our hearts to become soft before your truth. And then, God, our lives to be increasingly framed under that truth. We know the end will come our end or this world's. And Daniel chapter 12 can help us close out the remaining days or years of our life as you have said. Please then, Father, for Jesus' sake, help me command what you will and grant what you command. Amen. Well, if you were with us last time, you may remember that the final chapter here in Daniel is concerned with the end of the world as we know it. You see that in verse 4, if your Bible's open, verse 9 and verse 13. And so we said last time, there is an end coming. Time on earth is not perpetual. Rather, it is temporal. And the message from heaven through the pen of Daniel is the end of the world as we know it is going to be horrible 
for the people of God. However, we reminded ourselves in light of chapter 11, and we did this so that we wouldn't behave as crazy people, a kind of, you know, um, honey bar the door, here comes the Muslims. So in order us to be rational, we said, and we reminded ourselves, when has there ever been a time when it wasn't difficult for the people of God? Persecution has always marked God's people. 2010, every 20 minutes in the world, someone died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Still, the last days, whenever they may arrive in that final sense, will have an intensity unmatched in all of human history. So what we said was, the message from heaven was given to, to stabilize us, right? And so we said, verse 1, if your Bible's open, we're going to be protected. And even if you meet death, you'll be fine, verse 2, because there is a resurrection. Therefore, our task is to stand firm in the things of God in the time of the end. So the worst that can be done to us if, by those who oppose God is death, but God promises you resurrection. And, and if it was only, what, two or three weeks ago it was Easter? And what is the message of Easter? Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And because He lives... You can live also. So we said, since all that was true, the response of God's people, if they would be wise, verse 3, shining like the stars, leading, leading many to righteousness, right? Leading many, as we understand our New Testament, to Jesus Christ. For this reason. This is the reason why. Again, if your Bible's open, verse 2b, even though everyone's going to be resurrected, not everyone will awaken to the same location. Verse 2b, some will awake to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting wrath. And the difference is, is, is their name in that book that Daniel mentions there in verse 2 and 1 and 2? Is it in God's book? Now, loved ones, we're going to leave these verses. But I need you to hear me. If there is a judgment coming on everyone who's ever lived, if there will be a separation on that final day, which will be for all eternity between those who belong to Christ and those who do not, the only real distinction the Bible makes, if what Jesus said was true in John three thirty six, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son does, does not see life because God's wrath remains on them. If it's also true that what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 46, when he's teaching about the final judgment, those on the left shall go away into eternal punishment, having rejected God's salvation. If all that's true, if the gospel is true, then the good news is only good news if it gets to people in time. And since basic Christian teaching tells us here is every Christian's main and plain work. This is what we know for sure. We know that we worship God and we know we tell people about God's Son. I mean, that's main and plain. If you never did any more than that, you're on track. So let me ask you then, in light of that truth, and I'm asking you, frankly, with all the love I have in my heart, is it any wonder that verse 3 is put there to say, okay, here is high holy wisdom. Here is wisdom from heaven. Verse 3, the wise will shine like the stars, leading many to righteousness. So, the first thing I did at the end of the second service last Sunday was I had a nice lunch with friends. Then I went home and I picked up a book. The book is Honest Evangelism, Rico Tice. Why did I do that? This is why I did that. 
Because I was always taught this, that you have never, ever truly preached to the congregation, Joe, until you first preach to yourself, Joe. So I was preaching to myself, and I picked up the book to help me be a better evangelist. And apparently I had been reading the book before on another occasion because as soon as I picked up the book, it went to the folded page, the only folded page that I had in the book. So I opened the page. This is what I read. It is loving to warn people about hell. Some of the most striking words I've ever read about this are those of someone who isn't a Christian. He's an atheist, but who gets the point. And so he's going to quote from a guy named Pin Gillette. Do you know the, um, the illusionist uh, pin and teller? So there's a great big guy, and then there's a little guy, and they do all those illusions. This is the great big guy. Listen to what he says. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect them at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worthy telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? Now, that's an atheist. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's Penn. Now, this is the rest of the quote. We must be aware of living as functional atheists. Deep down, I know hell is real and terrible. And in the church Sunday, I sing about the reality that Jesus is the only way it can be avoided. But Monday to Friday in the office, at the plant, at home, with non-Christian relatives, when visiting friends or rejecting Jesus, I live as though that isn't true. I live as though they won't die, as though hell isn't real. And so I don't say anything. It is loving to warn an English tourist who is about to swim with sharks. It is unloving not to warn them just because you don't want to spoil your day or have them call you ridiculous. And that is it. It's all about love. My willingness to tell people the gospel is a test of my love for them. Now, it's not over because I'm still preaching to myself. After I read that, I asked God for mercy. I asked God for help. And then I thought about the last verse that I gave you from our past sermon, which were the words of Jesus when he said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So then I thought, I wonder about that word wickedness. So I got out my Greek dictionary and the word is anomia. Well, that doesn't mean anything to you except to say, ah, no, nomia law. In other words, no law. So if I'm doing what I want and not what God says in that context, if I'm marked by that, I will know that my love is going to grow cold. Now, that's not like ooey-gooey sentimentalism. This is, this is fierce love for the lost. If I go my own way, my love will grow cold. Now, again, I'm preaching to myself. Then I thought about you and I. And I wanted to tell you this quote that I wrote in my black book maybe like four weeks ago. No private inclinations of Christian duty will excuse us from biblical obligations. Do you know what that means? It means we just can't make up what our Christian duties are. 
We need to follow the track that God has given us in his word. In other words, this is a 1 John. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. And this is what I know for sure. An antichrist spirit would be guaranteed not to lead you and I to not go and tell others. You understand that? An antichrist spirit would give us a million excuses why we can't tell people that hell is real and judgment is coming. One last thing. And I put in my notes, you know, like, if you say at the end of the sermon, one more word about evangelism, you know, I'm going to get, that's fine. I'm just preaching to myself right now. One more word about evangelism. So then after that, two weeks ago, I remember this article that I read. And, and the title was, Why I Admire the Church of England. And the article was from an atheist. Another one, Okay. And he's, he's writing to warn Christians about another Christian named Richard Dreyer. Now, Richard Dreyer I spoke of a few weeks ago. He wrote a book and he's giving talks telling Christians, look, we've lost the culture war, whatever that is. So basically, go hide out Christians in little villas and communes and let the storm pass, right? You go your way, let them go there. And this atheist, Matthew Paris, says this. What? Are you kidding me? You tell us there's a hell and you aren't trying to stop us from going there? That's two atheists telling us, come on, somebody say something to me. I mean, isn't that not amazing? Atheists have to tell us, come on, guys, come on, girls, come on, young people. Now, this is too easy, right? Jesus said, if we're ashamed of him before men and women, then he'll be ashamed of us before the Father. So take up your cross and follow me. I mean, that's kind of like a zinger that every pastor can give, like, you know. Okay, but this one's just as good. In fact, I like it better. What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. If there is a hell and you are bound there, would you not want someone to get in your way? Would you not? That's the logic of those three verses. And what do you say to that? A hymn. We are facing a task unfinished, which drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. That was verse 3. Three points and we'll be done this morning, Lord, with and with the chapter. First point, instruction. Your Bible's open. You'll see this in verse 4. To close up, Daniel is told, and seal up the words until the time of the end. Now, he's not told this to keep it a secret, but he's told it to preserve it for the people of God in future generations in order that they'll be able to study it and by God's grace, apply it, which is hopefully what we've been doing over these many months, trying to understand the book, and apply the book in some sensible way in our life. Following that instruction, the angel then says what would appear, at least on the surface, to be kind of a random statement, right? Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. I mean, what is that all about? But if you think about it, in the context, it is not a random statement. The context is the line of truth about the time of the end, heaven has given Daniel, which will be rejected by many. So that means people are going to have a choice. Because God gives every one of us the precious gift 
of the privilege of choice. However, God does not give us the privilege of determining a different outcome of what our choice will result in. In other words, the consequence is tied to the choice. The consequence here is restlessness because that's the sense of the phrase there at the end in verse 4b. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. This is a Hebrew idiom. And the idea here, it's, it's strange language to make a common point. This is a frantic, futile pursuit of something elusive, something vapor, uh, if you would, a vapor. You're almost there. You get it. It's in hand, but it always disappoints. In other words, when these people reject the wisdom of God and the truth of God and they suppress it and they replace it with a lie, the consequence will always be the impossibility to know lasting contentment and to know lasting peace. Now, I want you to think about that just on a personal level for a moment because we know that's true. Personally, on Wednesday, I sinned. That shouldn't surprise you. I sin every day. But what made Sunday, or Wednesday so horrible is after I sinned, I just freaked out. And I'm glad I freaked out because the day I don't freak out after I sin, then I've got trouble. But I was just freaking out after I sinned. Why was I freaking out? It was the consequence of my choice. Okay, so then after that, I had a choice to make. A, keep freaking out. Or B, remember the gospel. Seek God's forgiveness settle myself in his love, and enjoy the victory Christ provided for me on the cross. That was my choice. First choice was a bad choice. Second choice was a great choice. Jesus, describing the kingdom of evil in Luke 12, the kingdom of evil, seeking rest, seeking inner peace. Literally, literally that's what the word is. Trying to find peace, the kingdom of evil, but they can't find any. So they go here and they go there. Jesus described it as going to arid places, just roaming around like gypsies. And like the Rolling Stones, they can't get no satisfaction. And that might be us, that might be our culture, but that's the truth. So the instruction here is seal and save the book for a future day because as God's people will need this and people seek out knowledge, they could run into this book because they're going to be restless until they bow to Jesus. Classic quote from Augustine, God, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Second point, questions. And again, you'll see this if your Bible's open, there's two questions, one in verse five from an angel, one in verse eight from Daniel. We'll look at each in turn. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and here's our question, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Now, this is a discussion between an angel and a man clothed in linen who had trouble all week thinking, man in black, Johnny Cash. I had to just like rip that out of my head over and over again. He's, he's linen. Linen's white, right? Okay, probably. Now, the angel asked a question because the angel needs to know something, which tells us that angels don't know everything, do they? Angels do not know everything. They know some things, but not everything. The apostle Peter, 1 Peter, he's writing about the great miracle of being redeemed. And he says, even angels long to look into these things. So you have angels in heaven who are looking down from heaven and they're just 
wide-eyed going, this is fantastic. I need to know more about redemption because they don't know everything. So the angel speaks to this man clothed in linen and he's probably the pre-incarnate Christ. This is his question. How long until these astonishing things are fulfilled? And what I want you to notice is the guy, the guy is hovering over the waters. That's kind of neat. But the thing that I really want you to notice is that he swears by not one hand, but two hands. Okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is there's no other place in the whole of the Bible, Old or New Testament, when someone swears like this, where they swear with two hands. It's always just one hand. Genesis 16, Exodus 6. You can find it in the book of Hebrews. Here, it is his right and left hand lifted towards heaven. And then he says, well, my big sister Andrea told me to never do. He swears to God. Look at that. Verse 7b. I swear by him who lives forever. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. So what I want you to find out here is this is an enormous occasion. This is a big deal. There's an enormity to this. That's the first word. The second word, there's a mystery. Verse 7b. How long? That was the angel's question. The answer was it will be for time, times, and half a time. Now, I don't have a super secret Bible decoder ring to tell you how long that exactly is. Some people claim they do. I do not. And frankly, the opinions differ so widely here by, by people we would trust that, that I can't in good conscience be dogmatic about this at all. So I won't. But this is what I can say for sure. We spoke of this a little bit in chapter 7. And we said that whatever this phrase conveys, we know this for sure. Many years, periods of time must unfold before God fulfills what this vision declares. So it's an extended period of time, taking Daniel well past his own time. This is a vision about the future and all that will take place. So there's an enormity to this question and answer session. There's a mystery to it, but there's also a certainty. The certainty of what God says will happen at the time of the end. Okay, what's going to happen? Verse 7, last sentence. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be complete. Okay, let me just break it down for you. The power is the ability of God's people. The, the strength of God's people will be shattered to pieces. That's the sense of the Hebrew word. Now, that doesn't sound good at all. What does that mean? Because I'm a little frightened, to be honest with you. Okay, one commentator says it like this. There's going to come a point in history when it will appear like darkness has really won the day. It will seem as though the Antichrist is going to continue forever. It will seem as if the church has been entirely annihilated for the sign of her will be dim. Now, we are here, 21st century America, that almost seems like an impossibility until you open up a history book or you get out um, the newspaper and you read of places like Uzbekistan, Yemen, North Korea, Laos, and you find that the signs of the church are dim there. Luther, it may come to pass that there may be no pulpit left from which the gospel is preached, but the church will be preserved in the home through the father of the house. Now, again, that seems like so impossible. But yet, there's a sense of the gravity of chapter 7. 
Because we need to understand this. I mean, we have been fed a mouthful of God's blessing on your life is pictured, and you know this, it's pictured in your wealth and your power and your status and your freedom and your ease. And if you got that, well, you, you must be in the right. And you're going to go there all the way to heaven. And you're going to live that dream all the way to heaven. It's going to be wonderful. That's not the case here. When the power, when the hand, literally it's the hand of God's holy people, life has been sucked out of them, broken to pieces, all these things will be completed. In other words, the kingdom of God in its fullness is not going to come when Christianity is kicking tail on the earth. No. The visible sign of that moment will be utter helplessness, the powerlessness of believers and the face of persecution. Isn't that what the verse 7 says? I mean, that's the last sentence of verse 7. The kingdom of God in all its fullness is not going to come in in a great wave of popularity. If you go back and read the first chapter of Revelation, and the Son of Man is coming from the sky, and it says, all the earth will mourn because of him. It's Jesus. I'm not going to mourn because of Jesus. Well, apparently, uh, the language there is like, people are going to go. So the end, end, the final end, it's going to come when it will appear that all is lost and the people of God will be at their most helpless and their most hopeless and it would seem to the watching world, you know what, I guess there is no God after all. All this Christ stuff is bogus. The coming judgment, that's ridiculous. Church stuff, a silly waste of time. And look at them. We're pounding on them. And then the kingdom comes. Says Joyce Baldwin, the Antichrist will have practically destroyed God's people. Then the Antichrist himself will be destroyed. In the time of the deepest need, God works on behalf of his Elect. And by the way, isn't that a normal New Testament pattern? When things are at our worst, who comes and rescues us? God. Jesus says it best. The Son of Man will come at such an hour when you think not. Now, I want you to think with me, and this is for your encouragement. So I was considering these things. I mean, just trying to think about what it would be like if I was in that context. And then I said, okay, what can I do now to help them in that future day? Okay, why did I ask myself the question, right? If I'm not part of that future day, what can I do now to help them? Because didn't we learn that from Daniel? Remember in Daniel, we have one who invests in the future. He gives help to the future. He prays for the future. And he knows that he will never be part of that future. So he builds into these people's lives so that whenever that time comes, they will be greatly helped. That's the first thing. Then I thought about the gospel. And I want to tell you, and let me say it like this. I'm going to suggest to you that verse 7, that last part, is in some measure a picture of the gospel in this way. When you came to faith in God, was that pre-moment? This is before conversion. Was that your best moment ever? I mean, think with me. Was God looking down from heaven and saying, look at that girl, holy smokes. She is so terrific. I'm going to make her a part of the team. Is that how it happened? No, what does the Bible say? We were dead in our sins. We were plunged in sin. We liked it. We were an enemy of God. And then all of a sudden, God had to do something. God had to give grace. And when does grace come? At our best pre-conversion or at our worst? 
I mean, our awareness of how helpless and lost we are is the first signs that life is coming. Because we hear the gospel, then suddenly the first steps of our conversion, we realize what we actually are before a holy God. We're wicked. We're lawless. We are aware that we cannot change ourselves. We're powerless. And by God's mercy, we cry out for mercy. That's a conversion. That's how I was converted. And what happens? At just the right time, Romans 5, mercy comes. And God comes, and God changes the heart. He puts the gospel before our minds, and he enables us. This is regeneration. He enables us, by his grace, to say yes to Jesus. And we repent, and by faith we believe. Then God, if you would, his kingdom breaks into our life at the moment we least deserve it, and at the moment we least expect it. That's kind of here. Christians are shattered. They're broken. They're powerless. It's the worst ever. And then the king comes, turns off the lights to the earth, and he saves. Again, Joyce Baldwin, suddenly and surely divine intervention will interrupt history's course. Isn't that something? Divine intervention will interrupt history's course. Now, I want you to think with me about this. This view of the world is a profoundly different view of the world because the Christian's view of the world begins with a creator God who made everything and everyone and who sustains it. He's sovereign over the affairs of time even though he stands outside of time. Jesus transcends time but he puts people, Acts 17, in exact places, in exact times so that they would seek him and know him. And he orders nations. And he sets rulers in their place. Again, Acts 17, Daniel 2, Daniel 4. He sets rulers in their place every time. And then in these dramatic moments in time, he invades time to accomplish his purposes. That's the exodus, the falling of the walls of Jericho, the exile, the return of the exile, the incarnation, the resurrection, our salvation. God invades time. Usually when all seems lost, and what does he do? He saves his people. That's the angel question. How long? The man dressed in linen gives the answer. It's going to be a while, Daniel. But God's got it all mapped out. Now Daniel's question. I hear hear verse 8, but I didn't understand. Daniel asked the question, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And you see that in verse 9. Go your way, Daniel. That's the first reply. You're not going to get all the answers, Daniel. You You keep at it. You go your way. Many will be purified and spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Okay, so will the wise understand everything? No. Does Daniel understand everything? No. But he's a prophet. I understand that. But he doesn't understand everything. And beware of people who give you the impression that they do understand everything, especially in a book like Daniel. The wise understand this. God is sovereign over the affairs of this world, and they should endure to the end. So the wise view the world in a completely different way than the wicked. Why is that the case? Well, let me give you one simple scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where wisdom begins. 
And that fear, which results in wisdom, helps people know that they need to respond to God's revelation of himself. Not the God they want or think they need, but the God who is. Because again, loved ones, we ought not to think that the wicked are not religious. I mean, read your Bible, read history, read your newspaper. The wicked are religious, but the wicked will misread God. And by either ignorance or by desire, they will twist everything so that when the truth of God comes to them, they ignore it because it's not the truth they thought it should be, right? This is why Jesus was rejected as Messiah in his own day, because the people saw him and heard him, but they said to themselves, he is not the Messiah we thought he should be, and so they reject him. Still, God has revealed enough of himself to make every person accountable. That's Romans 1. So either by creation or by conscience, everybody knows there's a God. Now, they might suppress it or they might embrace it. If they suppress it, then they will replace God not with nothing but with everything. So they become preoccupied with things of time, of creation, with the temporal, with ourselves, if you would, and then the consequences follow. The wise do not do that. Verse 10, but the wicked do that. And you'll notice this, again, I don't mean to trouble you, but when the end comes, as God's people are being broken, you will see that they are being purified, they're made spotless, they're being refined. In other words, this is, this is wild. God is sanctifying his people, making them more like Christ, and the hammer of persecution, which is shattering them to pieces, pounding them like a jackhammer, is God's tool of choice. I mean, don't you want to say, what is that? And then the Bible says, that's God. That's God. God uses an evil, wicked situation to purify and refine his people. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's slope. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. And refine them like gold and silver. This is the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 17. It's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if you're still with me and you're thinking through this, I mean, that's just wild. (laughs) I don't fully understand that. A massive dose of sanctification is going to come by wicked people before God's people are glorified, before the end comes. That's God. But the wicked will be blind to this. They'll be untroubled, unconcerned, and unaware. But the righteous are going to be refined. Now, verse 11 and 12, quickly now, we're not going to even try to say anything about it except to say there's some people say that verses 11 and 12 goes back to Antiochus and those days are when he takes over the temple and when he's thrown out of the temple or his death. There are other people who say no this is all symbolic and they use this period which is described in the last part of chapter 9. Remember the seven sevens and the 62 sevens and in the middle of the sevens And we said, and we were very clear on this, that heaven was silent about this, and Daniel was silent about this, so we chose to be silent about that. So, I don't know, but this is what I know for sure. There is an end, and the people of God 
will endure until the end. Jesus, Mark 13, he told the story, the parable, the master is going away and he's coming back, but his return is delayed. And he says, the faithful ones are ready, even if the master's a little delayed. So if it, even if he doesn't come back on day 1,290, okay, the faithful hold on until day 1,335. And that's the assurance that Jesus is trying to convey there. And I think that's what's happening here in these final chapters. Last point is going to be super brief. Compensation. We've got instruction. We've got question compensation. Beautiful thought. Go your way, Daniel. You're an old man now. And you have very little ahead of you. So here's your instruction. Keep at it. That's what go, go your way means. Keep at it. You will eventually rest. A picture of death. And you will rise. Uh, uh, affirming the resurrection. You've done well, Daniel. You've done well. So you're going to receive your allotted inheritance. That's compensation. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Daniel was like not storing up uh, this side of heaven. All the good stuff for Daniel was on the other side of heaven. And he's going to be compensated. And that's it. And if you think about it, that's all you really need to know. Daniel, keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing really well. You're going to die. Death won't be the end. You're going to get an inheritance. It's going to be perfect. Just match what you've done perfectly on earth. And that's it. So how do you say goodbye to a book which, which I hate leaving? <laughs> how, do you, how do you leave a book which many people have grown fond of? I mean, how do you leave something which taught us about God's sovereignty and the, the, the exactness of his sovereignty and how God can change pagan king's mind and he can use the pagan king to tell the whole world that God is God? And how do you leave Daniel? <laughs> how do you leave him by? He's well-mannered, and he's wise, and he kept at it full steam until all his steam was gone. How do you leave that? In a world like ours, how do you leave it? Well, we'll leave it like the verse says. Go your way. Keep at your work. You're going to die. <laughs> If you're in Christ, you'll rise. God has a place for you. God has a place for you. So there's really nothing to fear. I love you, all of you, with all the love I have in my heart. Let's pray together. And we're going to use John Calvin's final prayer at the last page of his commentary on Daniel. Grant, Almighty God, since you propose to us no other end than that of continual warfare during our whole life and subject us to many cares until we arrive at the goal of this temporary race course, grant, we pray thee, that we may never grow fatigued. May we always be armed and equipped for battle. And whatever the trials by which you prove us, may we never be found deficient, but may we always be found in Christ. And may we always aspire towards heaven with upright souls and strive with all our endeavors to attain that blessed rest which is laid up for us in heaven.
through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.